0: First Peter chapter number one. And, uh, I'll make a confession to you. Last week I had to hurry through the last, uh, few points. And so I want to try to get those caught up this week. Uh, so if you, if you have your notes from last week, go ahead and pull them out. And I just want to say a few things about a couple things in the last few verses. And then we'll jump right on into chapter two. Last week we covered all of chapter one, or we tried to. Amen. Uh And this week we're just going to try to cover the first 12 verses of chapter 2. So hopefully that will be a little bit easier to tackle. But I do want to say a word about the last few verses of chapter number 1. Let's go ahead and read. We'll begin at verse number 18 and we'll read down to verse 21 and then we'll have a word of prayer. Paul says this, for as much, or Peter says that. Boy, that's not a good start, is it? <laughs> Peter says this, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a Lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your precious word, Lord. I pray you'd use it to your glory and honor tonight. We do ask it in Christ's name, Amen. Now, as we have gone through the first week, we sort of titled that our saved life. As Paul or as Peter, go, I'm liable to say it a few times tonight, Amen. But as Peter goes through writing the books of First and Second Peter, he deals with different facets of the believer's life. And last week we examined our saved life, the way that we behave what our salvation is, and the way that that ought to affect our lives, uh, you know, salvation is of no good if it cannot change us. Salvation is more than just reserving a seed in heaven. Now, I'm thankful that we do have an inheritance incorruptible and that fadeth not away, but uh, I- I'm glad that the Lord didn't just change my eternal destination when he saved me, but he also changed my present situation. And that's sort of what Peter has been dealing with, is the sanctification in the life of the believer, the setting apart, the different behavior, the way that we live because we are saved. He's gone through and he's listed a few of the reasons. And when we sort of uh, had to hurry through last week, we had we had been talking about because of our relationship, because the character of God and our relationship to him. I was giving an illustration on Sunday morning in Sunday school about this. When I was a child, I, I sought to please my father because I'd get a whipping if I didn't. Amen? But now that I am a grown man, a little bit older, uh, I still seek to please my Father. I'm sure I don't in all ways, and I'm sure I don't do it nearly as much as I should, but I do seek to please Him. We have communion and fellowship, but that is not based upon fear, but that is based upon love, because perfect love casteth out fear. And now our relationship has changed. Well, Paul's going to give another reason in the first uh, verses that we've read here tonight, and that reason is the cross of Christ. Because of what He did for us, we ought to strive to live differently. It was not a cheap thing with which he purchased our redemption, our salvation. And that's the first thing that he notes. He notes the price of redemption in those two verses. Notice them again. We're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. Now, there's not much in this world that would be more highly valued than silver and gold, precious stones, things of that nature. But we weren't even redeemed with anything as paltry as that he denotes the insufficient offer that man would seek to make silver and gold boy how many people think they're going to get to heaven because they got a little money in the bank account if you wonder about that just hang around a baptist church for a little while you'll find out that there's some even in a baptist church that feel that way and uh occasionally it don't happen often we got good people around here but uh, you know there's been a time or two in my pastorate where somebody's come up and said you know we we sure contribute a lot to this church and uh, I guess their definition of contribute and my definition was a little different. Amen? But just because they put a little money in the plate, they think that somehow they can usurp the authority that God has laid in the New Testament church. That's not accurate. That's not so. Why would we think that God could be bought with things as silver and gold? He paves the roads in gold where he lives. So that's an insufficient offer also. It notes not only an inadequate medium of exchange, but an inadequate means of escape. He says this in the next phrase. He says, from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers. Now, what does he mean when he says conversation? That word denotes a lifestyle, not just uh, the, our speech, but our actions. Not just what we convey with our lips, but what we convey with our lives. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, all that all that rabbinical tradition that you had, all of all of man's traditions and teachings, they brought you to an empty lifestyle. Like Paul, he goes down through a list of things that used to mean something to him. And he says, you know, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, you know, circumcised of the eighth day. He says, as touching the law, I was a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for the Lord Jesus Christ. Those I counted lost for him. And he said, I, yea, I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. When a person gets to the place where they're about to be saved, you know what they realize? They realize that everything they thought was worth something isn't worth anything. But Jesus Christ is worth everything. And that's what he says in verse 19. He denotes an infinite offering in verse number 19. He says, but with what? But with the precious blood of Christ as the lamb without blemish and without spot. That phrase precious, of course, we know what it means. It means highly valued. It's the same word that's used when the Bible talks about precious stone. You think about all of the diamond that could be mined out of the hills of this world, and it wouldn't even, I mean, you could stack it up throughout every single precious stone, every every ruby and emerald, every diamond, every single uh, vein of silver or of gold that mankind has ever struck, oceans worth of, of brass and of precious metals. If you were to lump them all together, it wouldn't even come close to equaling one drop of the precious blood of Christ. It's just not the currency that God deals in. You know, we have a lot of trouble sometimes because we think God values the things that we value. But we'd be a lot better off if we'd realize that the things that impress us don't impress God. He looks at all that the world could offer. He looks at a man's righteousness, his good works, his church membership, his baptism, his charity work, at his bank account, at his prominence, his prestige, his power, his popularity. None of that means anything to God. But when he looked at his son, he saw something truly precious He says the precious blood of Christ. It says this without blemish and without spot. You know what that means. That means there was no intrinsic flaw in him, but also that there was uh, no flaw of the action, flaw of the behavior. He was born of a virgin. He was born without a sin nature. If you ever hear one of these TV preachers, I, I heard back of this one of these TV preachers say that Christ had a sin nature he had to fight against just like anybody else. That's heresy. That's blasphemy. That's sacrilege. That is categorically false and unscriptural. Christ was born of a virgin. He had no sin nature. But not only that, not only was in him no sin, but he knew no sin and he did no sin, the Scriptures tell it. Not only without blemish, without natural flaw, but also without spot, without behavioral flaw as well. That's what God looked at and he said that is a sufficient offering. Let me say that is the only sufficient offering. He denotes the price of redemption, verses 20 and 21. He denotes the plan of redemption. I wish I could say more about this. Don't get nervous. Usually when I say I wish I could say more about something, we're already running behind time. Somebody say amen right there. But he denotes as to the past purpose of God. He says this in verse number 20, the first part, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Calvary did not take God by surprise. Before God ever endeavored on the act of creation, he had already already planned out the act of redemption. Before ever He stepped out of eternity into time and flung creation into existence, already it had been predetermined by a thrice-holy triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had already in concert predetermined that Christ would veil Himself in flesh, be the babe in Bethlehem, be the Galilean shepherd of the lost sheep of Israel, and go to a rugged cross to die for your sins and mine. Well, what an encouragement that is. You know, we feel like we've messed up sometimes. We've failed. And sure, we have. I'm, I'm sure that we have messed up and that we have failed. But do you know when God saw us, he counted the cost and he took the loss. Amen. man, it didn't bother him at all. It was already determined as to the past purpose of God, but also as to the present period of grace. Look at the next phrase. Who was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. You know, I think sometimes we treat cheaply the day of grace that we're living in. Do you understand what a privilege it is to live on this side of the cross? Do you understand that, that for the first 4,000 some odd years, uh, give or take maybe maybe a, uh, a millennia, uh, that the entire world sat in anticipation for the coming of God's dear Son? During that entire time, they had shadows, they had types, This Lamb of God had been foreordained, and they saw shadows of Him. They saw vague glimpses, kind of like the little girl in Song of Solomon. They they saw Him through the lattice work. But you and I, we live in a day where the Son of God has been manifest. He has been incarnate. He has lived amongst us. Uh, The Bible talks about the mystery of godliness was manifest in the flesh. To be manifest means to be brought into the light. Now, we don't have to wonder about what God's going to do, God's already done it just as he had already done it before the world was ever created. now it's been manifest, been brought into the light and we can see the redemptive work and plan of God. He was manifest for us and then it says this: uh, who by him, verse 21, who by him do believe in God that raised him from the up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. We understand what God is doing. We don't always understand the particulars of the plan. We don't always understand the details. And I'll confess to you that there's times in my life that I'm at a loss for what God is doing. But I know in the broad scope and scheme of humanity and of His purpose and desire for these ages, I understand what God's doing. It's good to have the end of the book. Somebody say amen to that. It's good to know what God has done, what He is doing, and what He's going to do. I understand that that uh, in this day of grace, and and Peter's going to talk about a lot of them here in a moment, but I understand that that the kindergarten age of revelation of the Old Testament law has been done away with, and now God's desire has always been that He have a people that were born again, whose whose law was written upon the fleshy tables of their hearts, who were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God from above, who would be, able to be a father and have that communion, that fellowship, that relationship. God has done all these things. Why? That your faith and hope might be in God. You know, a lot of folks, and I will say this before I move on, a lot of folks struggle because they're trying to have faith in their faith. They're trying to have faith in their faith. They're trying to bluff life out and play chicken with their circumstances. Aren't you glad we have a more sure anchor for the soul than than our faith? It's, it's not, we're not, we're not wavering because we're trying to trust and hope that we can believe and hold out and endure. I understand there's scripture that talks about holding out and enduring, and there are times life feels like that, but it's good to know that what our anchor is fastened to is the rock of ages that is unmovable, that is immutable, that is invincible, that is imperishable, The purpose for all of this is that we might look up to the God of glory and be able in response to His Word to say, Lord, You've promised and I believe Your promise. We struggle because our faith is in our faith and our faith is a wavering thing. reminds me of the Passover lamb. You know, on that night, uh, the Bible doesn't say that when he saw their faith, he would pass over them. The Bible says when he saw the blood, he would pass over them. No doubt between the time that they took that hyssop and painted the lentils in the doorposts before the dawn broke as they heard the the, the gut wrenching screams and cries all across the land of Egypt as mamas and daddies found their firstborn dead in their in their bed, no doubt there were times when their faith wavered. There were times when they had doubts and concerns and and loss of assurance, but it did not change the fact that the blood had been applied to the doorpost of their home. God wasn't looking for their faith. They had exercised an effectual faith by painting the blood on the doorpost. So God wasn't looking for their faith. He was looking for the blood. It's good to know for you and I, we're not saved by faith. Faith is the means whereby we come to God. But we're saved by grace through faith. Faith gets us to God, but it's by grace that He saves us. Once we have exercised that faith and placed that faith in God, we are hid within Christ Jesus. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit of redemption. We are justified and placed within Christ. And for us to die and go to hell, He'd have to die and go to hell. It's been settled. Amen? It's been settled. He speaks of the cross of Christ as a reason we live differently. But look, the next few verses He speaks of the control of the Spirit. And he denotes a new pattern in our life. Aren't you glad when God saved you, changed you? Verse number 22 says this, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. He speaks about the new life that we've experienced in Christ. Well, everything's different now. Somebody say amen to that. We're in a new world, the old songwriter said. How did that happen? We have uh, purified our souls how? in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Now, there's much I would love to say there that I do not have time. But let me just say this. When we obey the truth, it's not enough to obey the truth and also have the Spirit. We should be obeying the truth through the Spirit. This is one of the great things that most New Testament Christians miss. They, they view God as their co-pilot. The Spirit of God is sitting beside them and monitoring their behavior. And that's not the reality, my friend. The reality is that He's in the pilot seat. And as we yield to Him, as we yield to His leading in our lives, not that He might saddle up beside us and and smack our hands when we make a wrong move. No, that's not the dynamic. The dynamic is as we live our lives daily surrendering to His leading. Listen to me tonight. If you don't know what the leading of the Spirit of God is, you need to be born again. Let me say it again. You need to be born again. If you don't know anything about the Spirit of God, because every believer, there may be a lot of things he lacks in his life, but every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you don't know anything of the Holy Spirit, if you don't know what it is to have the Spirit of God convict you, uh to, to chastise you, to deal with you, to guide you, to lead you, uh I'd say there's as good a possibility that you're lost as there ever could be that you're saved. We do it how? Through obeying through obedience through the Spirit not just beside the spirit not just along with the spirit through the spirit in obeying his leading in our life he speaks of a new life experience but he denotes a new life expressed I like this what does he say under what what's the result of that you see people sometimes you ever you ever met somebody that was hard to love and they seem to find it hard to love anybody i've met people like that there's been times in my life when i found it hard to love people but you know i find this to be true that The harder I am on myself, the easier I am on others. And the easier I am on myself, the harder I am on others. And I find this, that the closer I get to Christ, the easier I seem to find it to love people. You know why? Because God loves them. Christ loves them. And so if we are surrendering to the leading of the Spirit of God, which is also, by the way, if you didn't know this, it's the Spirit of Christ, as we're yielding unto Him, His love for them will be manifested in our life. Under what? Unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. There's a couple things I, I would notice as we look at that. We notice the integrity of that love. It is unfeigned and unfouled. It is unfeigned love of the brethren. Unfeigned. You know what unfeigned means? It means unalloyed, unmixed carries with it the idea that there's nothing mixed in with it, no other intentions, no strings attached. Buddy, I tell you, when I look at the way Christians love each other with strings attached, it's a wonder we're not all tripping all over the place. You know, we love someone till they say something cross to us or we love someone till they don't do something we, we like. Hey, listen, a lot of times we love somebody till they mess up and disappoint us. That's not the kind of love that the Spirit of God and that God loves them with. God loves us even when we do mess up. Now, He does not love our sin. But he never ceases to love us. And he does not excuse our sin. But I'm glad to know that you can love somebody without excusing their sin. And you don't have to excuse someone's sin to love them. Just because that you stand against someone's sin, that doesn't mean you don't love them. But by the same token, that doesn't mean to love someone that you have to forgive. uh, Or let's put it this way, that you have to excuse or make allotments or, or allowment for all of their sins. You can love someone in the truth. You can stand against what they're doing, but still convey the love of God towards them. I, I There's a lot more I want to say, but that I don't have time. But notice not only the integrity of that love, notice the intensity of it. He says, love them what? Fervently. It means passionately. Passionately. A lot of people wonder sometimes why there's so much drama around churches. And there are. I mean, there's. if you don't believe that, you need to go join a church, because you're probably not a member of one. Amen? <laughs> if you don't think there's drama around churches, just go get involved. There's drama at every church. It's the way it is. Where there's people, there's problems. You know, a lot of the reason for that is because people love each other. One of the quickest ways, listen, you, you want to never be hurt again, go lock your heart away in a box. Never never be vulnerable to anyone ever again. Never open your heart to anyone ever again. And I meet people that do that. They get hurt at church and they decide the way they're going to fix that is never go to church again. And that's what they do. And oftentimes they grow cold and bitter and angry no, you say, how, how do I combat that? What's how am I, What am I supposed to do? Well, go ahead and open yourself up to be hurt. Go ahead and open yourself up. People are going to disappoint you. They're going to annoy you. They're going to frustrate you. But guess what? The, the balm of Gilead is able to heal any kind of hurts that we experience. And as we draw closer to the Lord, He will heal those things. He speaks of a new pattern of life. The next few verses, He speaks of a new principle in life. Look at verse number 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now, there is a context here and there is content here. And both of them we need to say something about. The context is this, that now the law and rule of our life is the word of God. He's talking about why we live differently. And one of the reasons uh, that, that we see is the spirit of God controls us. There is a new pattern to our life, but how do we exercise that? How do we have that new pattern? We obey the spirit of God, but we also align our lives to the truth of God's word. And he speaks of the power of of that word. He declares it in verse number 23. It is incorruptible. It liveth and abideth forever. There's an interesting duality here, and, and I won't say a bunch about it, but just to denote this, that when it speaks of the, the word of God by which we are born again, uh, the seed by which we are born again, and the word of God is speaking of logos. It is the the uh, is a title for Christ. It denotes Christ as the word. And uh, let me tell you something, it's one thing to know the Word, it's another thing to know the God of the Word. <laughs> I know a lot of people that know the Word of God that don't know the God of the Word. And uh, they have a head knowledge, but a head knowledge is not enough. It has to be, James calls it the engrafted Word. You know what that means, engrafted? Uh, we've been studying, do, we're wanting to do a little gardening, and they'll talk about grafting. That has the idea, you take a clipping from one plant, and you make a cut in another plant, and you graft that within Boy, that's what the Word of God does, doesn't it? It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and uh, it'll cut our lives right open. But you know what it then does? It inserts the fruit-bearing life of Christ within us, and it becomes a part of us. It's not just the heard Word, it's the living Word within us. He speaks of the power of the Word of God is declared. And look at verse 24, the power of the Word of God is described. He says this, for all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away. Uh, he's speaking about the impermanence of, of man's nature. Let me tell you, there's no telling how many hammers have been worn out on the anvil of God's word. Every, every uh, century or so, somebody will come along and declare war on God's word. Now it seems like it is constant, but I mean, you go through Diocletian, decided he was going to get every copy and he was going to burn it and do away with it. Voltaire. The French uh, philosopher, he declared that within a year he would render the word of God useless. He he said that he would, would put it in a grave through scorn and ridicule. And, of course, we know there were times in the Nazi regime in the Third Reich when they gathered up copies of the word of God to be cast into the flames and to be burnt. But guess what? The Roman Empire has crumbled. Voltaire's grave is still standing there today, but his, his bones have crumbled away, and the Nazi regime lies in ashes. But here a copy of the Word of God sits right in front of me. The Word of God stands. That's exactly right. Voltaire's birthplace is one of the, the center places for the printing of the Word of God. What are we getting at? We're saying this man... He fades away. We see the impermanent nature of man, but the imperishable nature of God's Word. The Word of the Lord endureth forever. And that Word uh, literally denotes the written Word. The living Word will never die, but the written Word will never be done away with either. It will always be here. Uh, listen, I don't like the assault on the Gospel and on the Word of God any better than you do. Uh, I could sit down, we could talk texts. we could talk translators, we could talk testimony, and I could show you, if you're a reasonable and rational person, I could show you very clearly that the King James Bible is God's Word for these English-speaking days and these English-speaking people. I could do that with very, very much ease. It would not, I sound like Donald Trump, don't I? Very easy I'd do it. We got a plan, amen. But, uh, you know, I, I, I could do that. It, it would be no trouble. Uh, but the reality is that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. I I, I dislike the assault on the Word of God just like anybody else does, but I understand this truth. Though we may be defenders of the Word of God, uh, though we may seek to appreciate the Word of God, though we may seek to do our part in ensuring the Word of God is preserved, we are not necessary to any of those functions. For God Himself has said He would protect and preserve His Word. Listen, when, when the worlds are on fire, the Word of God will still endure. When when time has finally taken its toll and when nations are crumbling, when empires are falling, the word of God will stand. And notice the next thing. I like this. He denotes the power of God's word, but notice the proclamation of God's word. He says this, and this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. I'm glad to know that I don't have to worry that, that next year my Bible and my way of living is going to be different. It's settled. We might say it this way, you probably heard a preacher say this every now and then. If you've been around here, you've heard it said that what's right today will be right tomorrow. What was right thirty years ago is still right today. I understand cultures and climates change, but I understand the word of God never changes. And that's the word by which the gospel is preached to us. That's what our that's what our salvation is tethered to. You understand that? That's what our salvation is tethered to. That that's the seed from which salvation has been birthed in our heart. So he denotes the cross of Christ and the control of the spirit. I want you to turn to chapter 2 and I want us to look at a few things very quickly. Uh we'll try to be as speedy as we can. Peter has been talking about our saved life, but in chapter 2 he sort of changes if not direction at least he changes tones. He begins to talk about this separated life. He has uh given us a great treaty, a great foundation for why we ought to be separate, but now he's going to talk about what that means. Listen. All Bible doctrine must take a practical turn at some point. The Bible is not a theoretical book. It, it is a real living book. It applies to our lives. One preacher said it this way, that it is not uh, it is not a decorated cake to be placed under glass, but it's the bread of life to be consumed, to, to be eaten, to nourish us. And Peter has shown the power of the Word of God, in our lives, but now he's going to talk about what that should mean for us and how it should separate us and make us a different people. Remember, he's talking to scattered strangers. He's talking to people that are living in a pagan world system but are seeking to be light for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's us today, maybe not to the same degree that they were in Peter's day, but certainly that is the circumstances we find ourselves in. We're living in a pagan world, and it's getting increasingly more pagan every single day. We need to be ready to stand and to be that light set on a hill, to be that salt that irritates but heals. We need to be ready to be the difference in this world. He denotes our separated life, and in verse number one, he merely speaks of the requirement. If you're going to live like a Christian, what is it going to take? And he talks about sin and its root. He says, wherefore laying aside all malice. Now, what is malice? Malice speaks of the carnal passions and inclinations of the natural man. It's that it's that old Adam within us. It's that, it's that want to that always wants to do wrong instead of wanting to do right. And he says we've got to be willing to lay that aside. That same word used for laying aside, it's the same word that's used when, when they're stoning Stephen to death. And the Bible says that they took their garments and laid them at the feet of the Apostle Paul. It's a volitional, deliberate act of the will. In other words... Uh, not only is it through surrendering ourselves to the Spirit, but as we surrender to the Spirit, we're going to have to be willing to mortify the deeds of the body and of the flesh. I promise you this, your sin nature will put up a fight as you seek to obey the Spirit of God. It's not that the Christian life is lived through striving, it's lived through surrendering. But we understand if we're going to surrender, if there are two people, so to speak, two natures within us, the old man and the new man, then if we seek to yield to the new man, we're going to have to buffet the old man. We're going to have to lay him low. He speaks of sin and its root, and then he speaks of sin and its fruit. And he basically speaks of inward sins and outward sins. We won't say a lot about it. But he says this, and all guile. Guile is deceit. Deceit. You remember when Christ saw uh, Nathaniel, he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. It's interesting that that same word for deceit, and probably when Christ spoke it, to Nathaniel, he would have been speaking Hebrew, he wouldn't have been speaking Greek. And when he spoke it to, to Hebrew, that said, they spoke Hebrew to Nathaniel, that same word would have been the word Jacob. You remember when Jacob was born, they, they named him Jacob, and it means supplanter, it means deceiver. And Christ looks at Nathaniel and he says, an Israelite. You remember after Jacob wrestled with the angel, who we know was the son of God, uh, at, at Jabbok, that God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And when, when Christ looks at Nathaniel, he says, now there's an Israelite. There's a man that bears the marks of Israel. Why? Because there's no Jacob in it. There's no Jacob in it. He is what I have been looking for, striving for. He says, all guile, and then he speaks this, all hypocrisies. Uh, hypocrisies comes from an obscure Greek word. You know what it is? It's the word hypocrisies. <laughs> Literally in Greek, it's hypocrisies. Uh, It denotes the idea of an actor, you know, just acting out a part. What he's saying is that uh, you ought to be on the inside what you are on the outside. And that sure enough, eventually you will be on the outside what you are on the inside. He speaks of envies. One uh, person described it this way, that envy and jealousy are twins. That envy is that ill will we feel towards someone that is advanced or promoted. And that jealousy is the desire to be advanced or promoted instead of them envy is what makes it hard to watch your neighbor pull into the garage with a new car amen but jealousy is what makes you want to climb in that car and drive it over and park it in your driveway speaks of envies he speaks of evil speakings has the idea of strife strife loud clamoring you ever just met somebody that was loud somebody that was just loud you know Met someone, you hear them a mile away. They didn't even have to be upset. They're just loud. Well, it's I don't think it's a sin to have a few more decibels in your vocal cords than the rest of somebody. But uh, I do think this, there are some people that thrive on clamor. They thrive on drama. They thrive. You, you ever met somebody that they love to hear one and they love to tell one? I've met people like that. God help me and God forgive me. I've been that person at times. Love to hear one, love to tell one. Paul or Peter says to us, he says, if you're going to live like a Christian, you're going to have to put that old nature down in a way. It'll never be eradicated on this side of the grave, but we ought to do our best to try to put it down and put it away. He gives the requirement for the Christian life, but then he gives the reasons for that in the next few verses. And he talks about our separation. He says we've been separated by birth from the old life. You say, where do you see that? Well, look at verse two as newborn babes. Desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. When we got saved, something changed in us. We were birthed into the family of God. I heard a little anecdote about this. A man, a doctor, lay dying and one of his friends, he was a lost man, one of his friends was trying to win him to Christ and and he tried to tried to make him realize his need of the savior and he tried to convey to him what it took to be saved and what it meant to be saved and time and again he tried different analogies he told him about the bread of life he told him about the living water and then finally in frustration he said you know what friend you just need to be born again and in a moment that doctor his eyes brightened as much as they could there at the at the veil of death and he said oh born again He said, "Why I've birthed hundreds of babies into this world. You're right. I do need to be born again. A baby has no past, only a future. And in that moment, he realized what it meant to be saved. Well, that's what's happened to you and me. Our past has been buried. We have only a future in front of us. The second you got born again, it became time to grow, time to consume, time to, to ingest the Word of God and to grow thereby he speaks of a babe in his new life he desires the sincere milk of the word you know you don't have to teach a baby to be hungry you don't have to teach a baby to be hungry if you don't think that's true it's been a few years since you've had one (laughs) you know i mean sure enough they'll let you know when it's time to eat they desire the sincere milk of the word why that they may grow thereby because it's necessary because they need to grow a new stature is desired in their life we all love babies i got a message just to few minutes before I got here, some of you all know Taylor and April Dawson. They've got that little baby, Shiloh. She's just about seven months old. And they just uh, spilled the beans on Facebook, let the whole world know that they've got a little baby boy coming now. And, uh, boy, I'm i excited for him. I I texted Taylor. I said, congrats on baby number two. I said, you're a brave man, (laughs) having that close together. Babies are precious. We love babies. But a baby that never grows to maturity is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. They've got to grow up. My wife sometimes in fact just today she was going through laundry and she pulled out a shirt of my little boys and she said look how big it is (laughs) and i said well don't look too big to me she said he used to be a baby i said honey you're right he did she said look how big he is now and i said well honey that's what they do they grow well christians are no different if you're at the same spiritual maturity that you were a year ago something's wrong something's wrong You're the same place in Christ today that you were 20 years ago. If you got saved 20 years ago or 30, however long it was, something is wrong. It natural for babies to grow. Well, as Christians, we have been separated from the old life by being born again. And it's just natural that we progress towards that end. He speaks of our separation by birth from the old life, but he speaks of our separation by belief from the old life. I'll tell you right now that the world don't look like it used to to me. And I was saved at a young age. You know how uh, my testimony is. I remember one time right after I got saved. I mean, I hadn't been saved but a few days. And uh, and I, I walked into Mom. I mean, I can still see it vivid as can be. I walked into the kitchen. Mom was standing there. She was loading the dishwasher. And I stood there and kind of helped her load the dishes a little bit. And I, I said, you know, Mom, ever since I got saved, I don't mind doing homework anymore. Now, that quickly went away. But... <laughs> That was my 10-year-old way of saying, you know, the world looks different now. What used to be a drudgery to me, now I, I I find at least the joy of responsibility within it. We have been changed. The world doesn't look the same as it did at one time. We value things differently. He says in verse number 10, he says, uh, If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and what? And precious. In other words, the lost man, he has no use for Christ or the things of Christ. But to the saved man, he is a precious stone. He speaks of the living stone and its character. And I'm not going to have time to say everything I want to about it. But he does say this. He describes Christ as a living stone. The the phrase for stone there denotes the idea of, guess what, a rock, (laughs) a stone. But we can't help but think of what Christ told to Peter. You remember when Peter uh, said that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God? Christ looked at him and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Jonas, Flesh and blood hath not declared this unto me, but my Father which art in heaven. He looked at him and he said, Thou art no more Simon, but thou art Peter. And that Greek word, Petros, it denotes a little pebble. But then he says this, he said, Thou art Peter upon this rock. And he calls himself Petra. It's not the same word as Petros. Petros denotes the idea of a little pebble, but a Petra is a large cliff, is a mountain, is a stone, is a rock. And uh, the Roman Catholics have missed this. They think that that the Lord is building His church on Peter, but the Lord never said He would build His church on Peter. He never has built His church on Peter. What He was saying is, you're a little stone, Peter, but I'm the big stone. And I am the rock by which and upon which the church is going to be Grown. He describes it, but he notes the stone not only described, but the stone is discarded. He says disallowed indeed of men. Uh, when he says disallowed, that, that has the connotation of something that has been rejected as unfit. Boy, that's how the world treated Christ. The Pharisees looked at him. Here, here's this wild Galilean, this, uh, th- th- this man whom John the Baptist was a forerunner to. He doesn't keep all their little Sabbath rules. He doesn't treat people the way that they treat people. Listen, He's eating with the publicans and the sinners. His disciples are eating corn with unwashing hands. He's healing withered hands on the Sabbath day. Uh, He's reaching out. When the Pharisees walk by a dead body, they'd shrink away. You know why? Because it'd make them unclean. But I'm glad that dead things didn't make the Son of God unclean. Because you know what he did? He broke up every funeral he went to. He was walking by the funeral procession one day of a little boy. And everybody's shrinking away and trying to pay the respect. He didn't pay no respects. He reached up and he touched that boy and raised him from the dead. That's the Son of God. But that caused him to be disallowed of men. They said, well, how come he can do that and I can't? People are still saying that about their lives. How come he gets to say what I need to do and I don't? I'll tell you why, because he's God. He's God, he's the Son of God, he's God in the flesh. He's the King of kings, he's the Lord of lords, he's the Lord of glory, he's the risen Savior, and that's why he can. He was disallowed of men, but notice this, the stone is displayed, its vitality and value, he says this, but chosen of God, chosen of God. There's absolutely no scriptural doubt that Christ was the Messiah, the chosen of God. Three times God thundered from heaven, said, this is my son, this is my son, this is my son. One time they were standing on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah standing there, the two most prominent people probably in the history of the Jewish nation, if you, uh, if you set aside Abraham, I guess, but Uh, Most Jews would tell you Moses and Elijah were the two most prominent men in the history of the Jewish nation. And all three of them are standing there. And Peter, in his ignorance, he says, this is a wonderful place. Let's just stay up here. That's just like a Baptist, isn't it? Let's just stay on the mountain. We don't want none of them valleys, you know. Let's just stay up here. Let's build three tabernacles. Old B.R. Lakin, who pastored the tabernacle there in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, used to say if he had ever tried to finance one, he wouldn't want to build three. (laughs) Amen. But... uh. He said, let's build three tabernacles here. And God's voice thundered from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, hear ye Him. He wasn't speaking down about Moses and Elijah, but Moses and Elijah were mere men, servant of God, and servants of Jesus Christ. They were not Jesus Christ. God set him in a status above. Uh, he gave no honor, not to men, not to prophets, not to priests, not to kings, not to even the angels of heaven. Uh, did He ever give the prestige and, and prominence and preeminence that He gave His Son? Unto which of the angels, the Hebrew writer said, did, did the Lord say, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool? He never said that to Michael. He never said that to Gabriel. He never said it to Moses. He never said it to Elijah. He never said it to Aaron. Only to His precious Son, only to Jesus Christ, did He say, I have a place at my right hand. Sit thou here till thine enemies be made thy footstool. He was chosen of God, but then notice what it says, chosen of God and precious. Now when he says precious, he doesn't just mean precious to God, but he also means precious to us, to those that have believed he is precious. We see the living stone and its character. Notice his next phrase, the living stone and its companions. Look at verse number five. Ye also, makes us again think about Peter. Peter, you're the little stone, I'm the big stone. Well, guess what? Christ is still the big stone, but you know what you and us are? We're little stones. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We see in this passage a new likeness is revealed. We are lively stones. It literally means God's building a building. You remember the old gospel song, don't you? You don't hear it in church no more. I guess it's too countrified for most churches. But uh, they'd talk about working on a building. They'd say, I'm a working on a building. I'm a working on a building. Well, I'm thankful it's not me working on a building, but he is working on a building. You and I are part of that building. The New Testament church is likened to lots of things. It's likened to the body of Christ. It's uh, likened to uh, a mountain in some places in the Word of God. Uh, but here it is likened unto a building which God is building. Christ is the the chief cornerstone of that building, but you and I we have a place in there, and what are we what is a little rock? A little rock is nothing but a piece off of a bigger rock. That's what we are. Uh, the life of Christ is living within us, and we are to be made in His likeness but he knows not not only a new likeness but a new location is revealed we are in this spiritual house have you ever stopped and thought about this that god has a place in a new testament church for you and only you you know at this time i know that there was some bricks and and things like that but he doesn't say that we are lively bricks he says lively stones one thing you know if you've ever worked with stone and if you've ever my father was a was a uh, mason for a lot of years I mean not the not the oath taking kind but the grout laying kind amen and uh, he he worked in masonry for a lot of years and if you're working with natural stone you know the first thing that the that the mason has to do is sit back and he has to examine every stone he has to look at its shapes its contours its size and then you know what he does he visualizes in his mind exactly what he wants that project to look like And he begins to place stones in his mind, and then as he works, you know what he does? He begins to place stones, and every one of them has a spot. He doesn't just throw them down, however, that he that he just happens to, but every one of them has a spot and a place and a location that he is placing them. You know, God's done that to us. God has placed me. I'll say this, uh, uh, you know, and I'm a pastor, but I don't believe this is true just of pastors. One of the first things that I ask people when they when they join. Wallridge Baptist Church typically is I'll look at them and say sometimes they've been around here a like, Regina just joined the other day, but we, we had already claimed her as ours, you know, many, many months ago. But I had somebody ask me the other day about joining the church and they hadn't been, uh, coming real long and they said, what do we need to do? And I said, well, I've got one question for you. I told them, I said, I don't usually ask people's testimony because most people could lie their way through that. Right? Most, I mean, if you've been around here for a month. You'd know the language to use to, to convince somebody that you're you're saved. Most of the time, uh, I, you know, a lot of times I'll ask them if they've been scripturally baptized. But they could lie about that too. They know they're in a Baptist church. Uh, I usually don't like uh, don't ask them if they if they like the preaching or if they like the singing or if they like the ministries. Most of the time, I don't even ask them what they want to do, how they want to. I ask them one question primarily. I look them straight in the eye and say, Do you believe it's the will of God for you to join Walridge Baptist Church? That is the singular and only reason to join any New Testament church is that you believe it is the will of God to join together with that body. That you believe that God has placed you there. You may not understand all of the reasons. You may not be able to see how every stone is going to fit that's close in your proximity. But if you know the Master has placed you there, that will help you through some tough times. That will help you through the Sundays where the preacher is is, is a little off, which are a lot around here. Amen. That will help you on the days when the special singer just can't find the right key. That'll help you on the days when everybody decides they're going to take a day off from church, but you and the preacher, and you get the whole baleful when he gets up to preach. That'll help you when there's little drama, when somebody bumps into you or says something cross to you, when you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's the will of God for you to be there, that God has placed you there. A new location is denoted, but look at this, a new lineage is denoted. What does he say? Uh, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. God had a priesthood in the Old Testament. It was the Aaronic priesthood. It was those that were the descendants of Aaron. It was Levites, but it wasn't just any Levites. They had to be the descendants of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. They had a very literal job to do. Uh, they killed literal, well, they didn't kill. The bringers of the offerings uh, killed the, the offerings, but they inspected the offerings. They would then take those offerings and fillet them up and present them in a way to God. They had a very real place that they worked, a literal place that they worked. But when Christ came and died on the cross, the veil was rent between the holy places. The old priesthood was rendered obsolete, and now a new priesthood is instituted. You say, who is the high priest? Well, Jesus Christ is the high priest. He is the uh, apostle and high priest of our profession. He's not a priest after the order of Aaron. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It is a royal priesthood. Uh, It is a holy priesthood, but it is a royal priesthood. Who are priests now? I'll tell you who are priests. Those that are part of the king's household are priests. That's us. We're not offering up literal sacrifices, but we are offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We don't go. I was watching a thing the other day on uh, this fellow that was looking for for Noah's Ark. And tell me all that remember the 70s, you may remember this fella thought he had found it somewhere over, it wasn't even on Mount Ararat, but somewhere over there. And, uh, in this documentary, it said that when they, when they found this place, that, that they bought all the sheep that were there and sacrificed those sheep to God. And I thought, if there's ever anything that, if, if God's gonna let somebody find the Ark, it ain't gonna be a bunch of nuts like that. Somebody say amen. It ain't going to be a bunch of nuts like that. I hope not anyway. Well, they hadn't found the ark, it turns out. Surprise, surprise. But I'm glad to know, not just uh, whether they found the ark or not, but I'm glad to know that we don't have to offer sacrifices that way anymore. Hebrews chapter 13 denotes the kind of sacrifices that we live and that we offer and Romans chapter 12 does too. We're to be living sacrifices and we're to offer up the sacrifices of our, of our lips and of our lives and of our loot, I guess if one put it that of our money. That's what we yield to the Lord. These are the sacrifices that are acceptable. Look at the next two verses. He denotes not only the living stone and uh, its characteristics, its companions, but he denotes the living stone and its corner. Look what it says. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief corner stone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. I'll share this one anecdote with you before I move past this. The old rabbinical writers used to tell the analogy of the building of Solomon's temple, and they said that when this temple was being built, that there was one stone. You know, they'd have a quarry many, many miles away, And uh, there would be an engineer that was giving plans, the the building of the temple, the plans for it. And he would go down to the quarry and he would order certain rocks of certain dimensions. And the people at the quarry, they'd have no idea what the temple was going to look like. They just walked or worked off of the dimensions. And uh, an order came up for a strange stone that was of of odd dimensions and odd shape. Following orders, they went ahead and and they uh, carved out that stone and they sent it up to the building of the temple, the site where the temple was being built. When the workers came upon this stone, they noticed it didn't look like any other stones they had seen. But they looked around and they couldn't find a place. They weren't very far in the building of the temple, and they couldn't find a place where this stone would fit. And they thought, well, boys down at the quarry have just made a mistake. And they took that hill, that rock, and they rolled it down the hill and pushed it off into the trash heap. Well, work commenced on the temple, and they continued and continued. They came to the final day of the work on the temple. And uh, they looked around, and someone called for the capstone, for the chief cornerstone that was to be placed up, the final stone in the temple. They looked around, and it was nowhere to be found. Then one of the workers, a little bit chagrined, realized that that stone that they had pushed away, that they had disallowed, that they had rolled down the hill, that that stone fit the very dimensions for the final spot. And they went and got that stumbling block, (laughs) that that rock that was just in everybody's way that they had pushed down the hill, they went and got that and brought it up and placed it on the temple. And now that had become the chief cornerstone, the the chief stone, the capstone, the crowning rock to the temple. That's the destiny that's foretold in verse number 6. God had always planned this, had always figured this, that those that would believe on this chief cornerstone could be saved, that they would not be confounded, confused, or ashamed. Look at verse number 7. Its destiny is not only foretold but its design is foretold he says this there's two basic reasons functions of this chief cornerstone he says unto you therefore which believe is precious but unto them which be disobedient the stone which the builders disallowed the same as made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient whereunto also they were appointed now you must remember that Peter is most likely uh, writing to a mixed company of Gentiles and Jews And so as he writes this, he acknowledges that those that have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and those that obey Him will find Him precious. Let me tell you something, there's nothing, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. If He has to drag you along the whole way, you're not going to enjoy it very much. But if you'll get in lockstep with Him and if you'll obey Him, you know what you'll find? He's precious. He's precious. But to those that are disobedient, there's a connotation here of the Jews who had rejected him in their disobedience. What does it say? He's what? He's made the head of the corner. He's still the capstone. He's still got the authority, but what is he also? He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, we don't have to go very far in our reasoning to know what a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense is. It denotes a rock that lays out in the middle of the road, and there it becomes a rock of offense. One commentator described it this way, that if you were to be walking down a path and there was a stone set out in the middle of the pathway and you were to be warned that you were to step around that stone, that you were to be mindful of that stone, that you were to respect the, the weight and the authority of that stone, then if you were to walk circumspectly, you'd have no trouble with it. But if you were to walk around with your nose in the air, disregarding the weight and the danger that that stone could pose to you, then it would be no surprise when you toppled over it uh, end over end. That's what he means when he says whereunto also they were appointed. Peter is not saying that a lost person is predestinated to be lost. What he's saying is that a lost person is predisposed to be lost if they reject the chief cornerstone. It's as simple as a mathematical equation. If you try to do a math problem and you, you ignore the rules of math, it's pretty much settled that you're going to come up with the wrong answer. Well guess what? If you live in disobedience, then you might as well go ahead and figure that you're going to stumble, you're going to fall, you're going to have problems. It's just a simple matter of logic. It, it is as as simple as breaking the rules of of mathematics. If you disobey the Word of God, you're going to have trouble, you're going to have problems, you're going to stumble. And you know what you'll find? You'll find that Christ, instead of listen, instead of being precious to you, you're going to find him to be an authoritarian to be a chastiser in your life. You know, every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Let me tell you something. I love my daddy. I, I, I loved my daddy even when he was whipping me. But I sure loved him a lot more when he didn't have to. He whipped me because he loved me. He whipped me when he didn't love me. Or it, well, he loved me even when he didn't whip me. But he loved me even when he did whip me. I loved him either way. But it was sure a lot easier when I just went ahead and obeyed Did the right thing. You ever, when you was raising your kids, you ever stop and think to yourself, why don't they just obey? Why don't they just do right? My daddy used to say when he'd go to whip me, he'd say, it's going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you. I never believed that. I used to always think, why don't you turn around and let me whip you then? That's the way to punish me. Well, I know now as a daddy that that is true. That Christ is going to bring joy to some, but he's going to bring judgment to some too. It's going to bring judgment to some too. And if you're a disobedient believer, then in your life you're going to feel the chastening hand of God. That's a good reason to do right. We ought to do right because we love God. But even if our love of God does not motivate us to do right, we ought to still do right because He'll chasten us if we don't. I'm not saying we live in fear of Him. But we need to respect that stone that lays out in our pathway, the weight of it, the authority of it, the danger by which it poses. Because let me tell you something. The Hebrew writer said it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He denotes the living stone in its corner. Notice not only, he moves on. He talks about the privileges of Christians in the next two verses. And uh, I, I will not have time to say all I want to, but look at verse number 9. We'll just run through these real quick. He says this, but ye are a chosen generation. The word generation carries with it the idea of a people group or a racial group. Now, who was God's chosen people group and racial group through the Old Testament? The Jews. They are still God's chosen people. But right now, the blessings and, and, and provisions and peace of God has been postponed from their life. Well, who are the blessings and peace and provision of God on right now? God is still watching over the Jews to some degree. Don't misunderstand me. But we talked about this Sunday night. The way that God is watching over the Jews right now pales in comparison to the way He did in the Old Testament. I mean, He rode out before Him in battle in the Old Testament. He blew through the mulberry trees. I mean, He destroyed uh, hundreds of thousands of people. The angel of the Lord did in one night. And now they're struggling more. Why? But God's provision is upon the New Testament church in that way that it had been. Uh, All through the Old Testament, the Jewish writers, there were several times when it was denoted that there was an angel of protection that was watching over them you see it time and again it was the angels that encamped around the hillside around elisha and his and his servant it was the angel that slew the syrian army in the middle of the night 180 some thousand and now in this day that we live in you know what uh the hebrew writer says he says that we are to be careful in the way we treat people because sometimes we entertain angels unaware i understand that term angels denotes the idea of ministers and denotes the idea of of christians but i also understand this that every little child christ said that they have an angel that beholds the face of the father now, i don't want to get too much into readers digest christianity and god post christianity you know those books are always full of somebody that saw an angel but i do believe that god has his ministers that watch over us i do believe that as his chosen generation as his chosen people we have god's favor upon us not only a chosen generation but a royal priesthood now we are the priests of God. Christ is our high priest, but we also are intercessory priests interceding on the behalf of others. He says, an holy nation. Now, I had something I wanted to read in relation to that, but suffice it to say that Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world. You remember when he said that to Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. But They don't fight because my kingdom is not of this world. Now, this would be threatening to the federal government, amen. just as it was to the Roman government. But do you realize that our primary citizenship is not down here? We're part of a holy nation. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our king is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, Our promises are not in this world or of this world. Our enemies are not temporal. We war not against flesh and blood, but against uh, principalities and rulers and and powers and, and spiritual darkness. That's what we rule against. It is a spiritual nation, but it is a real nation nonetheless. He says we are a holy nation. He says we're a peculiar people. (laughs) Now, most of us should be able to say amen to that, shouldn't we? We're a peculiar people, but it has the idea of being rare, of being chosen, of being of precious value. Why? Look at the next phrase. That ye should show forth the praises of him. (laughs) That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know why God's done all that? God had not done all that to make you feel good. Now, it ought to make you feel good, but that ain't why God did it. God hasn't done all that to show the Jews what they're missing out on, although I hope that they do recognize the blessings of God that are available through Christ. You know why God has done all he's done for us? That we might render unto him praise, honor, and glory. That we might talk about him and his goodness and his grace. That we might lift our hands toward it. Listen, if you are not a praising Christian, then you are a pointless Christian. I got a few folks with me. If you are not a praising Christian, then you are a pointless Christian. You remember when Christ was standing uh, by the temple, and there was some folks that were standing out there that's crying out, "Hosanna, Hosanna! To the Lord God, to the utmost, to the highest." The Pharisees they didn't like that, because Pharisees never like that. And if you don't like that, I believe I'd check up see whether I was a Pharisee or not. And they said, "You ought to hush them folks over there." They're embarrassing us. I've heard that a time. They're embarrassing us. Christ turned around with fire in his eyes. He said, if these held their peace, the very rocks and the trees would cry out and praise me. <laughs> the very rocks and the trees would cry out and praise. That's how, that's how serious God is about praise. That if we don't praise him, the rocks and the trees would cry out and praise him. He speaks of our resulting praise in the end of verse 9 and in verse number 10, which in time past were not a people whole, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Boy, we got something to praise him for, don't we? <laughs> he speaks of our separation by birth and our separation by belief, but he denotes our separation by behavior from the old life in verse 11. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, You know, Cain is a picture of the carnal man. Cain became a fugitive and a vagabond. A fugitive is a man that ain't running to something. He's a man that's running from something. And a vagabond ain't somebody that's going anywhere. He's somebody that's going nowhere. But Abraham, he's a picture of the spiritual man. You know what he was? He was a stranger and a sojourner. He was a man that knew where he had been, but he knew where he was going. He was a man that knew he wanted to be comfortable in his surroundings, but he knew that he was headed home. Isn't it something that the Holy Ghost is likened to a dove? A dove has a strong homing sense, doesn't it? And you know, when the dove of the Spirit of God takes up residence in our life, he's headed home. And you know what he does? He points us in a homeward direction. He takes up residence in our life and he says, All right, son, let's go ahead and head on home. We're just sojourners. We're just passing through. He speaks of a new attitude to the world around us. We're we're not at home anymore. We're strangers, we're sojourners, we're pilgrims. But he speaks of a new attitude to the war that is within us. What are we to do? We're to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. I must share this. I must say this. That phrase, abstain uh, from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, that word for war denotes the idea of, of siege warfare. You know, that's what the flesh does. The flesh is, is engaged in siege warfare against our new man. He's just trying to wait him out. He's trying to starve him out. He's trying to use fear to drive him out. Now we know that's never going to happen, but boy it feels like that sometimes, don't it? You ever just felt to yourself like, man, I'm just getting weary. Feels like this battle is going on forever. Well that's cause this battle will go on in this flesh until we die and the old man is eradicated. Peter says we ought to abstain from those things. He denotes the reasons for our separation but finally in verse number 12 he denotes the results what does he say having your conversation honest among the gentiles the term conversation again it denotes a lifestyle and you know what he's saying he's saying people ought to look at you and see that you're different they'll look at you and see that you are a different kind of person why that whereas they speak against you as evildoers you ever notice that christians are to blame for everything today Man, we're the reason the economy's bad. We're the reason folks are shooting other people up. We're the reason that, that there's poverty and homelessness and, and hunger. In the, I mean, Christians are to blame for everything. That's only going to get worse. If you're waiting for the world to warm up to Christians, you're going to be waiting a long time. They're going to continue to speak evil against. Well, what do we do, preacher? Do we vote them all out? Throw the bums out? Do we, do we go out? Do we have petitions? Do we march? Do we protest? What do we do to combat that, preacher? It's what we do. That whereas they speak evil against you, uh, speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know what we keep doing? <laughs> we keep repaying evil with good. We keep loving folks. We keep doing right. We keep maintaining the testimony. We keep, we keep living separate from this world. We keep being a, a good testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? Because there's a day of visitation coming for them. It might come on this side of the tribulation in grace. And on that day, you know what they may find when their world falls apart, when the Spirit of God visits them, they may look back and they may say, boy, wonder where old Bill is. He could tell me how to find God. Wonder where Mike is. He could find me. He could tell me. He always did live the Christian life. He could tell me how to find God. And they'll glorify God on your behalf. Or it may come after the tribulation as they stand before the great white throne judgment and God looks at them and says, why did you never turn to me? And they say, No man cared for my soul. No man ever told me. And the God of heaven rolls back the reels of time and says, here's a man that loved God. Here's a man that testified, that shared Christ with you. And you know what they'll have to say on that day of visitation? They'll have to say, Lord, you're right. You're right. They were a Christian. They loved you. They loved me. On that day, they'll, they'll have to glorify God because of our good works, because of our righteousness.